0: Hey everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Cohen's Corner. My name is Michael Cohen, and thank you very much for tuning in to today's show. As always, you can find episodes of this podcast available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and just about anywhere else you listen to shows. For those of you listening on an Apple device, we encourage you to leave a rating, preferably five stars if you enjoy the show, and leave a comment if you're interested as well. I read all of them and check them all out, and I appreciate the support you guys have given me thus far. Today's episode is a little bit of a deviation from what we've been doing so far. I know I've focused entirely on the NFL up until this point, but I decided to mix things up, bring in something different, because like many of you, I'm sure, I've been fascinated by The Last Dance, and I really enjoyed watching all 10 episodes of the Michael Jordan 1998 Chicago Bulls documentary. And so one of my close friends in this business is Brian Winhorst, a national NBA reporter, for ESPN. You guys might know Brian from his time covering the Cavaliers and then the Miami Heat and then expanding into a national role for ESPN now on television and podcasts and written stories as well. Brian and I have been friends for a really long time and I thought it would be fun to bring him on and sort of pick his brain about the last dance and also trade some stories from when he and I covered the NBA together. I was covering the Memphis Grizzlies and he was covering the Grizzlies in the playoffs for one particular playoff run which is when he and I became friends and and then we talked about sort of that uh that ultimate what if in the modern sports era which is LeBron James the football player so I think this conversation was a lot of fun it went longer than normal because it was kind of like you know when you catch up with one of your buddies you end up just talking and talking and talking so for those of you who stick with it to the end the LeBron stuff is is near the backside of this so I apologize for that but I think you guys will have fun throughout and and hopefully enjoy it as much as I did so without further ado here's a conversation with ESPN National NBA reporter, Brian Winhorst. Well, Brian, thank you very much for taking some time to join me. I appreciate you uh, carving out a little section of your day for the podcast. How, uh, how are you doing, and how is life in Omaha these days?
1: You know, Omaha, we, you know, in Nebraska never had a stay-at-home order, so um, our quote-unquote opening has been um, not as dramatic as in other places. Um, however... Uh, The cases in Omaha have been going up steadily for two weeks, and nobody seems to be talking about it or worrying about it except for me. So as far as I'm concerned, uh, I'm still in quarantine. Um, So, uh, But, you know, we haven't ever been, like, in where we can't leave except for, like, groceries or medical. We've never been in that. So it's not really, like, staying like a lot of people that I know in California and other places. So um, that's my uneducated viewpoint.
0: Yeah, it's uh, it's been a little different here in D.C. There's been sort of a, a mass um, disobeying of the stay-at-home order, if you will, especially as the weather's gotten warmer. It hit 80 over the weekend, and you know there were photos of people, just thousands of people at Virginia Beach and thousands of people at the monuments and stuff. And so, as New York starts to get things under control and and sort of flatten things, I wonder if this particular area is going to become. More of the epicenter just because it's warmer and there's more people outside, and so I'm like you, I'm staying home. I don't go out very often at all, and uh, the podcast is about my longest form of human interaction during the course of the week. So mm. thank you for serving that purpose as well. All um, right, happy to do it. <laughs> but like you, I spent the last five Sundays watching uh, the Last Dance, and as somebody who grew up like many other kids, a giant Michael Jordan fan, I loved it. I thought it was a lot of fun. I really liked hearing from all the different viewpoints and players that he was teammates with or played against and things like that. So what did you kind of make of the series? I remember listening to your podcast um, leading up to it, the Hoop Collective, and you guys had talked about all the time that ESPN had put into it and how it was kind of kept top secret and not many people had seen it ahead of time and things. So what did you think of of the production and, and how it turned out?
1: Well, you have to understand a few things. Number one, um, it was filmed 20 years ago with literally film cameras Um, uh, and the film was like locked away in a vault. And so the editing process for them was much harder. I mean, I'm sure they digitized it at some point, but there was a whole process of that. And it was done by NBA Entertainment, which those folks who – were in those locker rooms and stuff. The players would have known all of them because they would have seen them in other NBA entertainment stuff. I mean, like you know, when I do stuff uh, now, like the I, I see the same guys when I'm in, like last uh, summer I was in China for the World Cup and NBA entertainment um, films that stuff. So the same people that are, you know, at training camps, were at the World Cup, we're at the finals. So there's a comfort level with the players and those guys. Um, They would have known them, even though this was for a documentary. It really doesn't matter. It was the NBA people capturing the footage. So they're kind of on the team, which is kind of, which is why you see some footage at times where the, they're letting them have access that other people wouldn't have. So of course behind the scenes access, but like um, in this last episode, where they showed Dennis Rodman escaping, um, the United center away from the press, the, uh, the bull staff actually let the cameras show him escaping, um, which was funny. And, um, uh, you know, that's because they were very comfortable with it. So you have to sort of understand the time and place, um, they capture the footage. The second thing is is that, you know, while the director has said that Jordan didn't have final cut, in other words, he wasn't able to sort of sit there over his shoulder and say put this in or don't put that in. Clearly Jordan and not just him but you know two of his most um closest associates were the executive producers who were watching every single thing and Jordan's influence basically was over this. And so it is not a objective documentary. Right. Um, It was never going to be an objective documentary. Um, And so I see people complaining that it's not objective. And I'm like, yes, we know. (laughs) know, We know it's not objective. No one ever said it was going to be objective. And I I, I see people complaining about that. And um, it's like, um, you know, complaining that um, someone's autobiography is not objective. Yeah, we know. It's an autobiography. So um, once you have that sort of out of the way, you understand that the the way the access was gotten and you understand the, the, the terms, I think it once you have that proper uh, lens to look through, I think it sort of helps you understand what you're watching and that you know you're not getting the full story of everything. But it was the little things that I liked, um, the little moments, um, not the big overarching moments. Like so many people analyzed how was Scotty Pippen treated? How was Horace Grant treated? How was so-and-so treated? I didn't care about that. I cared more about um, seeing the kind of cars Michael Jordan drove, seeing how he smoked like a chimney, you know, how he was smoking cigars on the way to the games, in the buildings, um, how he apparently hung out with his security guards and was closer with his security guards than he was with some of his teammates, it seemed like, at times. Um, you know... That kind of stuff was what I took away from it as opposed to like, you know, what the coverage of his gambling life was like. I wasn't expecting to get an honest view of what his gambling was like.
0: Yeah. And so, you know, for those who don't really understand or aren't too familiar with the intricacies of how journalism works from like a written standpoint, if I was going to write a profile of, I don't know, Dwayne Wade, for example, and, you know, I'm working for ESPN, writing a profile about Dwayne Wade, you know generally the the accepted standard is that Dwayne doesn't get the opportunity to proofread my story before it's published, and doesn't have the opportunity to say, "Hey, I don't like the way you wrote this; take it out," or "I don't want that quote in there," etc. You know, sometimes we will tell athletes and say, "Hey, I just want to give you a heads up. This is kind of what the story looks like, and I included these quotes from you." We might give them that kind of a courtesy, but they don't have the opportunity to kind of oversee things and be part of the editorial process. So this was a big departure from sort of that journalistic uh, standard that you know you would typically see on a, on a documentary or something where, you know, the subject himself isn't typically involved. So that's, I think, an important distinction to make and one that, you know, I found myself explaining to some of my friends too when they were asking questions because I find that a lot of people, you know, things that you and I take for granted having been in the business, they don't often understand that, you know, the athletes don't get to proofread things or don't get to say, you know, how they want to be covered in certain situations. So I do think that was important to explain. I really liked seeing some of these guys kind of like what their reactions were to moments you know that were 30 years ago and so what i mean by that is it was funny to see how one guy would remember a set of circumstances and then they would cut to somebody else and he would have a different recollection or describe it very differently. And so I just kind of liked seeing how these guys, and we all do it with our own lives too. We might remember something from 20 years ago that wasn't exactly the way it played out, just like our cousin who was at the barbecue tells the story about our uncle a little bit differently. And so it was cool to me to see how those things played out. You know, as, As somebody who grew up in Connecticut, I had a special soft spot for the Scott Burrell stuff. Scott Burrell Grew up in Connecticut, was a tremendous athlete there, played basketball at UConn, and uh, and I just felt awful for him with some of the stuff that he had to go through with, with Michael. I mean, you've been around the league a long time. I'm sure there are other examples that don't get as widely publicized, but I feel like in all sports, there's always kind of an example of that guy that gets picked on.
1: I mean, it happens on every team. Yeah. You know, it typically happens with the young players. Um, I think it's gotten maybe a little bit better since I, uh, well, you know, one of the things that was going on through the NBA 10 or 15 years ago was, uh, and they still do it to a certain extent, but it's not as bad, but they, they make the rookies um, have like these backpacks throughout the year. And usually they're like backpacks for little girls, um, like little, my little pony backpacks or princess stuff. And they, they them walk around. Um, that's kind of gone a little bit out of style because um you know, there's a there's a masculinity to it that you know can be a little bit offensive, and there's always seen on cameras and stuff. So I think they've backed off of that a little bit. But um, you know, before that, the, the hazing was stuff that you would never want to talk about. So um, you know, I think that you know, uh, stars picking on young players um, is 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 you know part of the human condition. But um, you know, I think that was one of the things about about this documentary, uh, Jordan. Still, there was still plenty of stuff in there about Jordan treating teammates badly, and I think his the methodology was I'm going to treat you badly to prepare you to help me win, um, because you need me. You know, you need this to win was his viewpoint. And you know, who's to say that he's wrong or right? But you know, at least that was in there, and that was, you know, you know, think about what what we didn't see. You know, the stuff that we saw that he did do uh, with teammates. Um, We were talking about a guy who punched two of his teammates that we know about right in the face who knows what we don't know about just think about that
0: yeah that's that's a really good point and um you know when i was watching some of the the scott burrell stuff and and some of the practice footage i actually thought the practice footage was really really compelling because you know a lot of times you don't get to see you know you might go to shoot around or whatever but you don't get to see sometimes the intense practice and the five on five and what's that what that is like and so Watching Michael interact at practice with Phil and sort of sometimes overriding what Phil Jackson said or sometimes just kind of you know, overhauling whatever the drill was because he wanted to do it his way, I thought that was, was really insightful stuff because I can't imagine too many other people... At least in the modern world where there's so much social media and there's so much that leaks out via Twitter or Instagram or Snapchat, whatever video platform is out there now, I find it hard to believe that a lot of that stuff you know could have happened today and, and that's what a lot of my friends and I were discussing when we would talk about the show is you know what if Michael Jordan played in the Twitter era? you know, I don't think he could have gotten away with smoking as many cigars as he did. I don't certainly think he could have gotten away with as much gambling as he did, or, you know, going to the casino as often as he did, things like that. So it's, it's kind of interesting to think about how guys would, would handle a different era in the social media lifestyle versus not in the social media lifestyle.
1: Yeah. So 15, so this is my 17th year covering the NBA, but like, you know, 15, 16 years ago, the coaches would let you watch some of practice. You could come in, um, the, the, the rule used to be the last 20 minutes or the last 30 minutes of practice and you actually used to actually be able to see it. You actually used to be able to watch scrimmages um, and, uh, you know, now nowadays you don't get to see anything. You get to see the guys taking jump shots and free throws. Um, uh, so, that was unheard of. Back then, you actually were able to watch all of practice and, um, uh, so, totally different from a media access standpoint. The other thing is, I will say that um, at Team USA, um, Krzyzewski and then Greg Popovich a little bit this last summer let us watch a lot of Team USA practice. Um, and I just soaked it in being able to watch um, practice because it's not something we normally get to do. And um, watching Greg Popovich run a practice, now, Grant, this is – Team USA with you know you know this Steers team was not exactly loaded with stars but you know a a star you know pretty star heavy practice um, and so he's not running it the way he would run the Spurs practice uh, but watching the little tricks that he would do so um, like. <laughs> it was like the first day of practice. You know, a lot of these guys was their first sort of contact workout all summer. I mean, I'm sure they had been doing some workouts, but not like with full contact. And so it was the end. They had just gotten finished scrimmaging. And, um, and uh, he said, okay, uh, if you, if you miss these free throws, whatever, we got to run a suicide, you know, um, ladder drill, whatever you want to call it. Um, And so um, the, the guy missed the free throw. And, uh, he said, okay, everybody on the line. And he goes, all right, I'm, when you start running, I'm going to tell you how far you got to run. And so he blew the whistle and uh, said, charge circle, which meant they had to run like three feet you know, four feet, you know, up to the charge circle. And so they all laughed and thought that was funny. He would do stuff like that. Uh, Last year, or, you know, I guess the summer of eight, uh, like the summer of 18, they just had like a little three-day mini camp for Team USA. And it was even, it was way, there were way more stars there though. Like Harden was there and uh, Durant was there and um, Paul George. I mean, it was way more star-laden because it was just a few days. Um, And I remember, um they had a couple of like college players there and there was this guy that had helped, um, that like had helped the team qualify this guy who was like a G league player. I don't even remember his name right now. I'd have to go look it up, but he was sort of invited to this training camp as sort of a gift for, for as a thank you for like helping team USA qualify, like the previous winter, like going down to Argentina, right, and right. Chile and stuff like that. Doing so on these stupid qualifying tournaments that they had to run. So it was this G league guy with all these NBA stars at practice and pop had him come out and shoot free throws to keep the guys from running. And so, yeah, granted, it's mostly an empty gym, but this guy, he's in front of, like, the MVP, you know, in palms, front of James yeah. Harden. And, yeah, and he did make the two free throws and, and like, pop, you know, purposely. It was kind of like, uh, it was a challenge for sure, but it was almost kind of like a gift to this guy. So, um, you know, those, again, was a little things. Uh, you know, like at ESPN, I would almost probably never write about something like that uh, because most people don't care. But it's the little things that I like to find, and there, if you were paying attention, there, that, that was the little things that were, were in that documentary, um, you know, that, uh, that, that I liked.
0: So I've never had the opportunity to meet Michael Jordan. I don't think I've ever been in the same building as him unless he was at one of the NBA All-Star games that I covered. Um, but my little sort of personal experience with his level of fame was that when I was a junior in college, his daughter, Jasmine, who appeared at the end of the documentary, she enrolled at Syracuse. And I was dating this girl that lived in a dorm. It was up on a hill. And it was kind of isolated from some of the other dorms. And so I remember that I was in uh, my girlfriend's room and we were hanging out or whatever, and her roommate came in and said, oh, my God, Michael Jordan's downstairs. And I said, come on, you're lying. Like, at this point, people had... It's
1: a very strange thing for Michael Jordan to show up at Syracuse. Yeah, exactly. And, and some, so
0: some people had, like had heard rumors of of his daughter enrolling there, but nobody really knew for sure. And for some reason, it stuck in my head that she enrolled early in January, maybe. I don't know. That could be wrong. But anyway, so he was moving his daughter into the dorm, and um, my girlfriend's roommate busted into the room and was like, oh, my God, you have to go downstairs. Michael Jordan's here. There's just, like, people flooding out of their dorm rooms, just storming into the hallway just to get a glimpse of him. Because, you know, I think one of the things that we often forget is that, you know you might say oh it's it's not that easy to recognize michael jordan if there's thousands of people on a campus but then again he's 6-7 and the majority of people are not and so he walks into a building and he's head and shoulders above everyone so you bust out into the hallway and you can just see the top of his head and i remember that That being just like a a crazy thing. The weekend that he moved in, he couldn't go anywhere on campus because once word broke that he was out there, people just like went looking for him and tried to find him anywhere that they could. And so that was that was sort of my only, you know, direct experience with his level of celebrity. And it was it was fascinating because she his daughter, Jasmine, became like a quasi celebrity on campus. It was, oh, I have class with Michael Jordan's daughter. or Oh, Michael Jordan's daughter came to my apartment for a party. It was it was interesting. It was really weird.
1: Yeah and that's one of the reasons that he was talking about, you know, he had that one uh, pretty interesting moment uh, where he was in um a hotel room before his first retirement and he invited the cameras in and uh was like, well, this is it, you know, I'm 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 going to re- you know, I've I've had enough of this. He was like laying in some Marriott couch in some some suite and he was just like I'm pretty tired of this. I can't I have to stay in my room. I can't go anywhere. And so, you know, I've definitely seen that type of celebrity. Um, You know, I wasn't around him much. I did cover a few of his games when he was with the Wizards, but, you know, it wasn't quite the same. Um, And certainly I was aware, you know, of his aura. You know, one of the things about Jordan, this this was the case for LeBron for a little while, but really hasn't been true for much of his career. But there was such a huge interest in Jordan that, he held press conferences everywhere he went a lot of times, uh, for, you know, so you go into it, you're a visiting guy in an arena and he would actually hold a, you know, he would actually come out and have a press conference because the, <laughs> the crush of people who wanted to see him and hear everything he said, you know, it would just be a, you know, sort of a nondescript game in the middle of February on a Wednesday night. there you know you weren't going to get like huge pronouncements from him on the state of the world right he was going to talk about the fact that they were you know three games below 500 and trying to get the eighth seed in the playoffs you know what i mean and um but they had to hold press conferences because the demand for him was enormous in every single city he went to he you know even the the celebrity that lebron and kobe lebron is and kobe is was um it didn't match what i saw just a little bit of him and you know, he he just he had to live like that. And, you know, the only other guy that I could compare that to is Tiger Woods. That was around him a little bit. Um, the demands and the celebrity that he had, um, he had to go to the big steps to uh, try to get privacy. The irony is that <laughs> he was still out there in other parts of his life, which was crazy. But that's another story for another day.
0: Now, as an owner, Michael's been pretty far out of the spotlight, right? Like, he kind of shies away from things. I admit I don't follow the, the Hornets too closely.
1: Yeah, he comes to a fair amount of games and sits on the, sort of, uh, on the court right near the end of the bench. Um, but he is not a very visible owner. Certainly does not speak uh, to the media, uh, speak in the media at all. Only speaks maybe once or twice a year. Sort of like a, an NFL owner in that regard. Um, keeps a very low profile. Uh, obviously, doesn't do many commercials or anything. Even more, although he still has, you know, some endorsement stuff out there, and still does some stuff. And you know, he just has this—he has this new tequila brand that uh, he's obviously enjoying the tequila during the. uh yeah. He's got tequila with him for one of the interviews, but he's not doing any, like ads for it. So you know, he's even sort of gone away from doing that. He's sort of, I guess, moved past. He's got enough money; he doesn't have to worry about it.
0: One of your colleagues at ESPN now is Scotty Pippen, and you had the opportunity to work with him a lot on the jump with Rachel Nichols and you know just talking to him for stories and things like that. What was it like to kind of get to know Scotty in sort of a, a media role and, and just how did you sort of begin to pick his brain and things when you guys were off the air or whatever, just trying to glean anything you could from a guy that was close to uh, and part of one of the best dynasties ever?
1: Yeah, I mean, Scotty, first off, he's very pleasant and um, he's just a very mild mannered, pleasant guy. Um, And uh, you know, he, he looks like he still, he could still play in the league. I mean, it's crazy. Um, But uh, yeah, I mean, actually the best stories that I've heard from Scotty are not the bull stories Are stories about his days in Houston when he was there with Barkley and uh, Elijah Juan at the end. And, um <laughs> i'm trying to think also on the team rudy t was the coach you know he went to houston and then his, some of his days in portland um i actually have enjoyed he he doesn't imp- <laughs> he doesn't imp- he actually does impressions with people i i don't think they're like good impressions but they're funny
0: i was gonna say how could he do um, impressions it, with a voice that's so distinct like his? i know
1: i know my god his voice is so deep um And uh, the other thing is that Scotty, uh, Scotty, uh, you know, he sweats a lot. Uh, It's just, he's, 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 you know, hot-blooded or whatever. It's his nature. So (laughs) Scotty's always fighting the, the sweat on the set, you know, and they, we have all kinds of things to try to keep him cool. But, um, you know, this is a guy who, when I was in the nineties, when I was in high school and college, you know, like I watched him. I watched it. He was a freaking hall of fame superstar. And so the opportunity to sit with him and talk to him about that kind of stuff. Um, you know, he, 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 he'll talk about Michael occasionally. I don't ever, I don't like to bring it up. I like, sure. well, I'll let him bring it up, you know, but um, I mean, there is this, <laughs> there's this one time I, I can't say too much about it. And I, um I hate to, to do it to, to you like this, but I, I'll just sort of tell the story as much as I can it was during all-star weekend um, in LA last year, I guess it was 2009 uh, 19 all-star weekend. It was in LA and we were getting ready to do some stuff with the jump and a couple of NBA players, current NBA players who were there. Uh, the, the, the ESPN studios in LA are right across the street from the Staples center. So it was real easy for us to get, you know, good guests who were coming through to do stuff there on that weekend. And, so this was that Friday of All-Star Weekend. We were getting ready to do a show. I think it was a special two-hour show. And, and uh, we were in the green room. And there was a couple of NBA All-Stars in there with us. Uh, and it was me, <laughs> these two All-Stars, and Scotty. And Scotty at one point says, close the door. <laughs> <laughs> and so there's four of us. And he starts talking. And he starts telling us a couple of stories and talking. And um, like I couldn't believe some of the stuff he was saying. And I was like looking at one of the all-stars who I I have a relationship with. I was just looking at him like, can you believe you saying this? Um, He was just in a mood um, at that point. So um, you get that every now and then. Um, uh, The best was last year during the Western Conference finals, Scotty was in Portland with us. We were doing a whole bunch of stuff there and he was, because he was, he's got ties to Portland because he played there. He was like an invited guest of the Blazers and he would, uh, he would uh, get us into like the special hospitality rooms um, after we were done with our show. That was always nice. And, and so, you know, he's a, he's a, he's a nice man. I, I, I know various people have different viewpoints of him, but um, I have nothing but good things to say about him.
0: The jump is kind of cool because you have an opportunity to sit down with these guys and kind of talk to them in a capacity and with a frequency that you wouldn't ordinarily, if you were a reporter covering the team, you don't get you know, to be around them for a couple hours, whether it's getting ready for the show or after the show or during commercial breaks, whatever. Who are some of the other guests? You know, former players and things that that you've liked talking to. I know off the air, you and I have talked about how you like working with Tracy McGrady, and he's a guy that you think to be pretty insightful. So, in that setting, who are some of the guys that you've you've kind of been you know pretty impressed with or really liked working with?
1: Well, Tracy and I have a really good relationship, but I mean, the guy that is fascinating to work with is Paul Pierce because. I covered the bulk of Pierce's career, you know. Uh, I didn't cover the 2009 finals when he got one of the finals MVP, but, like, he played against LeBron. Like, he was probably, he probably played more against LeBron than anybody. They played each other in, like, man, five or six playoff series. Um, I actually covered one of them.
0: It was an internship between my junior and senior year of college so that would have been the summer of 2008 no that's wrong that's completely wrong the summer of 2012 um and that was the one where rondo had like that 45 point game or something during the series and then lebron just kind of closed it out but that was when i had an internship i was working for the sun sentinel and i think you were probably living in miami at the time but we actually did not cross paths then we'll get into that a little bit later but i just remember that series being Wildly intense those Celtics Heat series, and so um, you know, anytime that that you can talk to Paul about those kinds of things, I'm sure it's really insightful.
1: Yeah, I mean, like Paul and I covered two Cavs Celtics series in Cleveland, and then I think there was two Celtics Heat series in Miami, and then he played against uh, LeBron in the Heat when he was with the nets for that one year they played in the play in the series so like i covered you know so many paul pierce games plus the Cavs used to play the um the celtics twice in the preseason um they would play them once somewhere in new england and once somewhere like around ohio this is back when they used to have eight preseason games and so like i actually loved it because i got to see like i went to manchester new hampshire i went to portland maine i went to mohegan's son um what a, what, a great I went, place. I,
0: what a great place mohegan's son in the in the fine state of connecticut
1: <laughs> yeah uh,
0: i went to Pro. or uh, i
1: think i mentioned providence and then they would play the celtics like in columbus or they would play the celtics in dayton or um i think they played them one time in pittsburgh um so um the first time lebron ever played against paul pierce um or first or second time in a regular season. So anyway, they play them twice in the preseason, four times in the regular season. And sometimes they play them in the playoffs. So one year, I think I made six different trips to Boston during the course of the year. So as I like went there once in the preseason, twice in the regular season and uh, three times in the playoffs as a seven game series. Um, so, you know, so anyway, this, this one, the first time they played sometime in their first year, um, LeBron, Maverick Carter's father, Otis, um, used to sit courtside for some of the games. And Otis, uh, LeBron used to call him Uncle Odie. Um, Otis was LeBron's driver at the time. <laughs> and uh, um, Otis sometimes sat courtside. So this one game, like he started talking all this trash to Paul Pierce. And Pierce started going back and forth with them. And like it became a real thing where it was a, a rivalry on the court and then Pierce was talking trash back. And I think Pierce ended up with the 44 points that night, you know, it did not work out. And then in LeBron's second season, um, and like, I promise you nobody remembers this because it played at Mohegan sun. Um, and it was the first night, uh, of game one of the 2004 world series. So the Red Sox were in the world series, I think against the Cardinals. And the game happened to be happening the exact same time as game one. Like, like the basketball game tipped at seven and the world series tipped at, or started at eight. And so there was nobody at the gym, you know, first off it was at a non NBA arena. I mean, you know, there was a few people there, but um, the game got really nasty. Um, uh, Gary Payton was playing with the Celtics that time. And he got almost into a fist fight with the Cavs players. Um, um, and uh, they ended up playing the next night on the second night of a back-to-back in the preseason, which is crazy. I know, in Columbus, so like this game had gotten for even though it was a preseason game, had gotten really heated. So they two two teams see each other the next night, and LeBron and Pierce start trash talking, and Pierce um, gets so angry about something that he actually spits at the Cavs bench Oh, geez. For, for which he was fined. But again, this is like, this is during the world series. It was probably game two that night. Um, so nobody in Boston is paying attention. It's preseason. It's not an NBA arena. This, his games are not on television. You know, this is 2004. So Pierce spits at the Cavs bench. They're almost as a fight. He and LeBron go chest to chest. then in the post game, in the postgame, again, I want to point out, not an NBA arena. So, like, their locker rooms are right next to each other. And Pierce and LeBron, it, the closest thing I've ever seen LeBron come to an actual fistfight was him and Pierce in the hallway postgame uh, getting into each other's face. I remember that there was, like, a like a metal barrier there that they were talking over. And at one point, Pierce, a couple of Pierce's teammates picked him up off the ground to carry him into the locker room.
0: Jeez. Well, so
1: they had a rivalry. This was back before they were even thinking about playing each other in the playoffs. So they were talking trash. And, like, you know, LeBron's not really a trash talker, you know. And so Pierce had gotten the better of him a, a few times. And, you know, in, in, in Pierce's view, and he's not wrong, he, he forced them to leave Cleveland and go to Miami. And then the first time they played him, like in the first month, um, uh you know, the Celtics won that first game and Pierce ran his mouth on Twitter. Twitter was still in its infancy. I mean, so uh talking to Paul Pierce, who does not like LeBron, one of his fiercest rivals, talking to Paul Pierce about all of those moments um, was amazing. Has is, been amazing. Is I he the same
0: it. is he and, the same way off the court? Like will his his fiery kind of competitive personality just is that the way he is in everyday life?
1: You know, he's a little bit more. I don't know. Like he's he says stuff on TV that I'm surprised he says, but
0: right.
1: it's not like we didn't hear him say it before. Um, but see, here's the thing. Like I've always respected him. Uh, you know, he kind of had a a weird game. You know, he wasn't a super athlete, but he was a great player. And you know, he always liked to talk trash. He wasn't in garnett's league and he's a little bit he's not you know like some of those celtics guys like rondo is a bit of a maniac Uh, garnett is a bit of a maniac ray allen he's not a maniac but he's a bit off another one of your connecticut guys yes pierce is sort of the most you know i don't want to use the word normal but you know he is the most normal out of that quartet and so um, it's easier to have a more rational conversation with him about it. But um, I spent all this time covering all of these Paul Pierce playoff matchups, and so it's been—I've had a lot of—I have a lot. I've gotten a lot of enjoyment out of talking to him and. Um you know look when you want when you want him to talk about his glory days, he never has a problem talking about it, you know right. like anybody so um it's fun
0: when when LeBron went to miami and and you moved to e s p n and started covering the heat, I know. Comparing anything to the level of fame and, and interest and popularity of the '90s Bulls is kind of taboo. But given that Miami is a star-studded city anyway, and it's a it's a place of of lux and grandeur and all that, was there any element of of like, you know, even tangible levels of fame kind of close to what the Bulls were when when the Big Three formed in Miami and everything was the center of the basketball universe down there on South Beach? Yeah.
1: I don't know. I can't compare it. I just, you know, the thing about it is is that Miami in general from about January 15th to about April 1st is an area which, I mean, it's just, it's one of the places people want to be in 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 the world is, you know, South Florida in the winter. Um, And I will say to you this, uh, the weather is, I mean, (laughs) I remember my first winter in Florida it was between like 77 and 83 and I didn't see a cloud for like three weeks. I mean, you know, it is the weather is everything they say it is. And so every single one of those heat games, um, there were stars there, you know, and I don't, I don't know if it's quite comparable to LA where the star culture is just,
0: right.
1: It's just sort of everywhere. Um, but you know the, and you know the thing about is that everything about Miami radiated cool. You know the arena is a really cool arena. Um, it's not what I would say is an, is one of the nicest arenas in the league. Like you don't go in and go, wow, this place is amazing. But it is really cool, and really it hasn't changed almost at all since they built it. <laughs> it's basically been the same. But it is a really cool place, and um, you know you know, everything about it. It's just such an attractive thing to be in Miami in the winter. And people just loved coming to the heat games. And, you know, every single one of those games felt like such an event. And, um, you know, in the, uh, in the playoffs they would go to their white hot, um, playoff sort of thing. And that was cool. Like just everything the Heat did was cool, you know? And, uh, you know, those guys were at the center of it and, you know, it made them easy to dislike, I guess. But if you were just on the fence or you were a fan of them, I mean, how could you not enjoy it? And, and it was, you know, it was quite the environment. I mean, it was a bit of a, it was a bit of a mess in terms of like, we had never seen a team assembled like that. I mean, there are, there are star-studded teams throughout NBA history, but the nature of the way that happened made them a little villainous. Um, but you know, it just made that when they went on the road and they were not in the cool of Miami. It just made it like the show was on town. I don't, I don't remember who came up with the, uh, with the um, nickname, the heatles. Um, but man, did it feel like it? Because that's yeah, one thing, like people talk about the Beatles and how like when the, when the Beatles would come to a town, like it was like an event that was literally remembered for decades. <laughs> Um, you know, like the Beatles stayed here. The Beatles right. played here. You know, like that's what it felt for in NBA terms. Like when the heat rolled into Memphis, like you would think, you know, Memphis, you know, there's, there's no juice here. You know, I mean, this is just, you know, one out of 82. But as you know, when the heat rolled into Memphis, it was a really big deal. When the heat rolled into Portland, it was a really big deal. When the heat rolled into Salt Lake City, it was a really big deal. And, um, I actually learned something from, from LeBron, um, watching him and he didn't, he didn't handle it the first year very well, but you know, one of the things that happens with LeBron is, um, you're such an event and I got to feel that, you know, this was the case for Jordan and maybe even on a, on a, probably on a higher level, but like, you know, LeBron would come into Denver, let's say, uh, or Salt Lake city. Salt Lake was really a good, a good, this is what I always think of in Salt Lake and, um, you know, sometimes we'd be like the second night of a back-to-back, like on the fourth game of a five-game trip or a fifth game of a six-game trip, and, you know, it was one of the biggest nights on the calendar for the Jazz and their fans, you know, the first game to sell out, you know, the, the centerpiece of all their ticket packages and whatever, and, you know, the Heat always were there in January, so it was always sort of mid, mid-season blaws and... He'd come in there, and the Jazz would be all fired up, and they're at home, and they've always been a good home team, and they would, you know, they would win. I think LeBron's got probably a worse winning percentage in Salt Lake than he's got in any other city in the country, is my guess. And um, you know, the Jazz would win. The Jazz, would, you know, sometimes the Jazz would win close, but you know, sometimes the Jazz would blow them out. And you know, he'd come and have to sit there, and you know, all the Jazz fans are all over the heat, and it's a the building is designed in such a way that the fans are right on top of you. It's a hard place to play. And, you know, they're loving their jazz and they're cheering and booing the heat. And, you know, he's got to go to the post-game press conference and sit there and like, what do you think about, uh, young Rudy Gobert? What do you think about, uh, Darren Williams? Hey, isn't so-and-so great. <laughs> Aren't the jazz great? How come the jazz always kick your butt in this building? You have to just sort of sit there and take it, you right. know, and, um, and you know, uh, it was like a one of the biggest nights of the year in Salt Lake City. LeBron comes in with the heat or the Cavs, you know, or whatever, and takes it on the chin. And, you know, I kind of learned from it. You know, at the end of the night, he'd put on his suit, throw his shoulders back, and put on his, you know, $3,000 coat, go get in the bus and move on to the next city. And, you know, one of the things you, you learn is that sometimes you got to you just take the loss. Just take the loss and move on. And... um that was something that he had to learn while he was in Miami because every single night, wherever they were, it was the biggest event. And if they won pff, big deal, you're supposed to win. They lose. Oh my gosh. Can you believe it? And I mean, at times I was part of the drumbeat of saying, Oh my gosh, sure. you know, being in the media, but, um, you know, I it, that take that in, being in that environment takes some getting used to, it. it takes some learning to deal with it.
0: And, um,
1: you know, that, that Heedle's team was certainly part of it.
0: Yeah, hearing you kind of describe what it's like to go into a Salt Lake City or, you know, an Oklahoma City or one of these places that is not a, a marquee market and and how the home fans and everybody on that team just gets fired up, it reminded me of kind of around the time when when you and I met, when I was covering the Grizzlies in Memphis, and this was sort of the the last hurrah of the Grit and Grind Grizzlies or or maybe like the three quarter mark of the Grit and Grind Grizzlies. And this is when they had Marcus Al and Zach Randolph and, and Tony Allen and Mike Conley. And I remember just hearing from other teams that they hated playing the Grizzlies because they played such a physical style that they would beat you up. So imagine, you know, it's the fourth game of a five-game road trip to use the example that you gave and all of a sudden you have to play a team that has the most physical style in the league with the two most physical big men in the league and they just want to smack you around and that's why it became a difficult place to play in Memphis and And those were those were really interesting teams to cover because they were kind of like the last they made the Western Conference Finals one year and they were kind of the last team to have any kind of national success and again they didn't go to the finals or anything but still to reach the western conference finals and they did it without really any anybody that would you now consider a mega superstar like is Gasol a really good player and one of the best players at his position yeah is Conley was at the time was he one of the best point guards in the league yeah but none of them had the the levels of fame and and so it was kind of this this ragtag bunch that was really interesting to cover And, and Tony Allen of all the sports I've ever covered remains the most fascinating individual I've ever been around and and my favorite Tony Allen story you know everyone hears and sees the clips about first team all defense and and all that kind of stuff from when he would cover uh Kevin Durant who was you know specifically kind of his uh his his villain that he went after but Tony Allen always iced his feet after games which is not uncommon guys ice their feet all the time but he would have this big bucket and he would put it in front of his locker and he would put his feet in the ice and he would sit there and this would be when the media would come in and the two things he liked to do after a game was ice his feet and look at the stat sheet because he wanted to see what his opponent shot because he always covered the other team's best player if it was a guard or a wing player but he was he would be so exhausted from chasing guys around and fighting through screens and everything that he like couldn't lift his arms so every every game he would take the stat sheet and he would put it in the bucket of ice (laughs) and so it would be floating on the top of the bucket of ice and so he could look down and he was trying to squint to read it through the water as the sheet got wet and he would be like asking questions if he couldn't read the numbers but he was so tired that he would just take his stat sheet and put it in the ice bucket next to his feet because that was the easiest way for him to do it every night.
1: Yeah, Tony Allen was the uh, epitome of the junkyard dog. Um, I remember, you know, Tony's about 6'4, I think, yeah. on a good day. Um, you know, when he would play against the uh, Thunder, uh, Durant, you know, Durant's seven foot. I don't know what they measure him at, but he's seven foot tall. So you play Tony Allen, it's a pretty gigantic size advantage. Um, but Allen was really hard on, on Durant. And I think, um, you know, Durant. Uh, there's really no way for you to physically beat him. I mean, you can try to beat him up, but the but the rules are on his side. You can't put your hands on him in a certain way. Right. And because he's so tall and his handle has gotten so good that if you get too close to him, he can either swing his arms through and get that, or he can put the ball on the floor and do it in a way where he can get fouled. And, you know, maybe you rough him up a little bit, but you end up the loser because he's on the line. Um, he's, you know, built to be... You know, he, if, if he had not gone to uh, Golden State, or if he had um, not had injuries, I think he had a chance to be the all-time leading scorer. He might still end up there, but whatever. So, the thing about Tony Allen was he, he, he was able. He knew that Durant had Durant had one weakness, and I've talked to Tony about this. But Durant's one weakness was that you can get in his head a little bit. Yep. Uh, because you because you can't beat him any other way. Um, and what, and what he means by that is not necessarily trash talking because, you know, I mean, that maybe has some effect, but the problem is, is that when Durant gets motivated, he's just, uh, he's just an absolute beast. I mean, Durant, Durant is built to score. I mean, he is the most, most breathtaking score, um, I've ever seen, you know, even more breathtaking than like Kobe or Jordan, because he makes it look so easy. Um, you know, you can, you could feel Kobe and Jordan working. They also sometimes had to rely on volume. Durant never relied on volume. <clears throat> so anyway, um, I'm, I covered this playoff series between uh, the Grizzlies and, uh, and Thunder, which was where I get to meet you, however many years ago. And so Durant, you know, Tony Allen was on Durant in that whole series and um, Tony Allen used to do this thing. I don't, I don't know if I would call it a bark or something like whenever he would sort of be up on a guy, he would like make a noise um, sort of as a way to let the guy know he was there. And he was always on Durant, always on Durant's hip, always making contact, always letting him feel him. And so what would happen is, and I saw this happen a few times in the series, like the Thunder would run a play for Durant and because Allen was so on him all the time. Like sometimes Tony Allen would get hooked up on a screen. Like they would run Durant around in a circle and they'd have a stagger screen there where there were two different guys meant to chip Tony Allen off. The whole idea was to get Durant in the ball without Tony Allen on his hip so he could, you know, fire a 20 footer or whatever, which, you know, he was going to make most of the time. So they, they would run this play and Tony Allen would get caught on the screen and he would be, and Durant would be free, and Tony Allen would make the noise, um, and Durant would catch the ball and cower immediately. I saw it happen like three different times. Tony Allen wasn't even there, but oh. Durant was so used to Tony Allen being there, and when he would make that noise, that uh, he he just he had been trained, quite frankly, and so his first maneuver was to protect the ball and sort of crouch protect the ball before he went up into his shot. And so Tony Allen was able to actually defend Durant without actually being on him. And that is the nature, you know, Patrick Beverly does stuff like that too. Right. Um that that is the nature of a great <laughs> defender. And um that's why I mean. I mean by the way, it wouldn't work with anybody, but that was like that was the more, that was, like, one of the things you could do with Durant. Now, Durant may have learned from that. And you may not be able to get away with something like that on him today. But back then, he was a little bit younger.
0: Yeah, that series was was wild. And and I remember, you know, I was biased because that was the first NBA playoff series I had ever covered working for uh, the Commercial Appeal in Memphis. But games two, three, four, and 5 all went to overtime in that series, which was yep. crazy enough from the beginning. And then Zach Randolph gets suspended for game 7 for punching somebody in the groin and it was crazy for me personally because one of the biggest gripes people have with the first round of the NBA playoffs is that every series takes three months to finish because they're so spread out and so during that series I actually flew home to Connecticut and had my wisdom teeth removed and then flew back oh my to God, Memphis that's right. and you and I that. went out to lunch and I had to like gum a salad because I couldn't eat anything else and it was just it was a crazy crazy series and the, the weirdest part of it, and the one that I still laugh about, is that Oklahoma City's arena is one of the better arenas, I don't know if it still is, but for media seating, because you sit courtside. Now, some arenas, like Madison Square Garden, you sit kind of in between the first and second level, and some arenas, like Oklahoma City or um, FedEx Forum, where the Grizzlies play, you sit courtside. And you and I were sitting courtside, I don't remember what game it was, in Oklahoma City, and we happened to be seated next to each other, me for the commercial appeal and you for ESPN. And it was one of the promotions during a timeout when uh, teams throw t-shirts or balls or whatever into the stand. You know, the cheerleaders, the mascot, whatever. And I was looking down at my computer, writing or tweeting or doing whatever. And the Thunder mascot comes over. And again, my head is down and he's a, a couple feet away from us trying to throw things into the stands. And whatever he hurled, some kind of a balled-up T-shirt with a rubber band so that it was... No, I thought,
1: no, I thought it was a malfunctioning, like one of those guns.
0: No, 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 it, no. I no. Think that did... was, the gun would have killed me.
1: No, I thought it just malfunctioned.
0: Okay, maybe that was it. I don't know. Again, my head was down. But somehow, the Thunder mascot either threw or shot a T-shirt from four to five feet away... That hit me right in the face, and it busted my glasses, so I couldn't really see the rest of the game because they were, like, bent at a weird angle, and the lens had a crack in it, and I just remember you sitting next to me, could not contain your laughter, and then the funniest part, in my opinion, was that when I emailed the Thunder and said, hey, will you guys pay to fix my glasses, they said, absolutely not, and their reasoning at the time was that, like, the mascot was kind of like an independent contractor who they weren't responsible for, and I thought that was the wildest thing I'd ever heard.
1: Yeah, I if so. I think I remembered it like it was one of those air guns that shoots air out. That they that they mean to shoot it into the upper deck.
0: That could be and true. Like
1: it malfunctioned, and instead of it shooting like thirty feet into the air to the upper deck, it like shot like nine feet, and like this little arcing thing, and it landed on
0: your face. Yeah, it was not fun. Um, it was not fun. But that was yeah, that yeah. was a... well.
1: The other the other thing, I you know, one of my other memories of that series was. Um, you know, it's kind of hard to fly between at least at that time it was hard to fly between Memphis and Oklahoma city. It was like about a four hour drive. How, how far is that drive?
0: It no, it was like hours seven, hours? Hours.
1: seven hours, seven hours. It was a
0: long drive. That's why I couldn't, be- I know where the story's going and that's why I couldn't believe you canceled your flight and decided to road trip with me.
1: Well, I think, I think I just didn't like, because like you had to like fly to Chicago or Atlanta or Dallas. And yeah, I just,
0: that I believe.
1: Like it, it it took like six hours to fly and seven hours to drive. So I don't know. So, but anyway, we were on the drive over for game seven. I was driving back and I think I flew one way and drove one
0: way. That's all correct. Those games. But I anyway, know
1: anyway, um, we found out that Zach Randolph had been suspended for game seven while we were driving, um, from Memphis to Oklahoma city for game seven. And uh, I remember mean, we pulled over and I filed the story from we, – we, we pulled into a McDonald's parking lot and I stole McDonald's Wi-Fi to write the story on my laptop in the parking lot. But when we got to Oklahoma City, another uh, one of the Grizzlies players had been suspended. Um,
0: yeah, was it Nick backup,
1: Yeah, their backup point guard was suspended for the series from PEDs. I was like
0: another Grizzlies player
1: had gotten hurt or was limping or something. Um, I think it was Con- they were Conley's
0: being... hamstring maybe, or maybe it was Benno Udry. I can't remember one of the other point guards. That's why it was a story That's about right.
1: Be- Beno Benno was playing, right? Cause maybe Conley was injured. Anyway, we get to this hotel. There's only, I think Oklahoma city has built some hotels. And but at the time there was basically only two hotels in Oklahoma city. I mean, of any repute. And, uh the media stayed at one and the teams stayed at the other. And I don't know if they were trying to get away or whatever, but we walked into the hotel we were staying in and he Grizzly's coaching staff was in the hotel bar. he um, you know, basically getting drunk because they knew they were screwed. Um, uh, because there's just no way they could win game seven without Zach Randolph. Um, and uh, they were just really, not happy (laughs) and and imbibing and uh, we sat and watched um, Damian Lillard his first um, series winning um, shot which was against the Houston Rockets we sat there and watched them We, we watched it with with members of their front office too and I'll just never forget like they were they ended up putting up a good fight. They ended up yeah. throwing like a junk uh, game plan out there and like a weird lineup. Like they threw everything at the wall, hoping for it to work. It didn't work. The thunder one, but uh, I remember just sitting there with them and they just had like this gallows humor. Like, well, we're done.
0: Yeah, I remember and They watched. that was the night before Game 7, and then the next morning at shoot-around or whatever, they still didn't have a plan for what they were going to do. And the reason I knew that, I found out later, was because during shoot-around that day, I happened to be kind of hovering around the baseline, and one of the players, who I won't name, was sitting next to one of the coaches, who I won't name, and he said, hey, you know what, <laughs> how about I uh, How about I start at power forward tonight? And the coach didn't really say anything, but he kind of gave like a, a half nod and and i thought okay this is weird i don't really know what's going on and then sure enough like 8 12 hours later whenever the game was that particular player started and that was the lineup that they rolled out there and like you said it was a junk lineup they yeah, were, i
1: don't they, remember i don't i don't remember what he did but it was a radical lineup Yeah, like it, was, it was like a it was, total it
0: was yeah, uh, yeah they started it, it was super small ball i think except for gasol that's what I kind of remember it being, but yeah, that was that was a wild series. That was that was really interesting. Now I I'm sure there have been more exciting playoff series since then, and maybe it was just because I was a part of it that it was so interesting. But to have four straight games go to overtime, and I remember Durant hit that like fade away, falling out of bounds three pointer when he got fouled by either Gasol or Tony Allen on a closeout, and and that building, uh, what is it, Chesapeake Energy Arena, is that what it's called? Um, yeah, yeah, that place, that's one of the loudest environments I've ever been in.
1: Right. Which because it wasn't designed as an NBA arena. The NBA, are, most of the NBA arenas are designed to maximize, uh, premium seating and suites. Um, and, uh, so the fans aren't as on top of you. Not every, not all NBA arenas, but many of them. And uh, that that was built sort of as a multi-purpose arena. I mean, obviously it is a very it's a functional NBA arena. I mean, they have suites and they've built premium seating since then. But anyway, um, but yeah, no, I mean, probably it was one of the most intense playoffs series I've ever covered. You know, the the craziest year they ever covered was 2016 Finals between the Warriors and Cavs. Sure. It, it's it's very memorable because it went seven games. Although. The first six games, none of them were were that close. They were all blowouts and it wasn't until game seven, it was close. But the reason it was just crazy is because the going back and forth across the, across the country, um, it was the first ever, not the first, first ever, but the first time the two, two, one, one, one actually took place, uh, actually happened in the finals. Um, And they had only, you know, they switched the schedule because of this. Now there's two days off between every um, every uh, uh, travel day, which you may say is no wonder it takes so long. But you know, when you're going from from the West coast to Cleveland. And by the way, there's not a lot of flights. There's not a lot. Of, I think there was two nonstop flights a day between Sacramento or between San Francisco and Cleveland. So if you didn't get on one of those. You had to change planes. Like if you didn't leave, um, San Francisco by like 9.00 AM, uh, you weren't getting to Cleveland before midnight, right. you know? So like you, you would literally lose that whole day. Plus you had just covered the game the night before. So like you would cover the game, work until two or three in the morning, uh, you know, sleep for two hours, immediately go to the airport, fly all day to get back. And then I was like, oh, game the next day. And it was like, what? You know, so like that just was crushing because I started in Cleveland, went to to San Francisco, back to Cleveland, back to San Francisco, back to Cleveland, back to San Francisco, back to Cleveland for the parade. I mean, uh, you know, in like fifteen or sixteen days, or whatever it was, it was. Do they have hey, like
0: a media charter uh, now, or am I making that up?
1: They did. They do have a media charter, but I never take it. Gotcha. Um, for
0: various reasons. Gotcha. Okay. Um,
1: but actually, w- during that series, I think it was during that, I w- it was during one of the Cleveland uh, Warriors series. Um, there was a medical emergency on the media charter one time, and had to make an emergency landing. That sounds terrifying. Um, to offload a, to, to offload a media member, he was he's okay. He wasn't like a life and death thing, but they weren't sure. So they and so sometimes those media charges get interesting. Um,
0: <laughs> That's pretty funny. That's pretty funny. Well, I can't end the podcast without asking you about a little bit of football. So there's two topics I want to dive into really quickly. The first is that when you were in school, right at Kent State, that was when Antonio mm-hmm. Gates, the probably future Hall of Fame tight end, was a star on that basketball team and made a deep NCAA I was tournament just,
1: run? I was actually just out of school, but I was covering okay. the teams for the Akron Beacon Journal newspaper.
0: So you're covering Kent State, a team that doesn't go to the NCAA tournament a whole lot, and all of a sudden they go all the way right. to the Elite Eight. Is that right? That's right. And I guess, what was Antonio Gates' The Power Forward like? <laughs>
1: Yeah. Um, well, first off, my first year, I went to Kent State, but I really didn't pay attention to their sports while I was there because I was doing a lot of work. And um, and then I graduated, and then I got this job. And I, I remember when I graduated Kent. I mean, I I liked my time there. Like, don't get me wrong, but I remember I remember the day of my graduation. Like as we were leaving, I was like, I'm not coming back to this place for ten years. You know, I was <laughs> like, I'm out of, you know, I'm done. I'm done with being here. And like within six months I had gotten a job when they were like, yeah, you're going to cover Kent state. And I was like, what? The only good thing was, um, as a member of the media, I got like this awesome parking pass that enabled me to park just about anywhere, which I would have killed for when I was a commuter. My last few years, I, you know, parked on campus, drove in, but anyway, um, my first year covering them, I covered football and basketball and their football team had not had a winning record in, um, I think 15 years. So we're talking about really, really bad football. And um, they had this freshman quarterback who came in and kind of changed everything um, named Josh Cribs, uh, who later went on to be an all pro kickoff kick, kick and punt returner. Yep. Um, now Cribbs was a, was a stud and he was a big reason, but their best player on this team was this linebacker. Um, who was the best, most dominating linebacker uh, i pretty much ever seen. Now, he dominated because he was playing in the Mid-American Conference. If he had been playing in the Big Ten, which is where he should have played, he wouldn't have stuck out so much. But he stuck out like a sore thumb um, uh, on, on that team. His name uh, is James Harrison. Yep. And um, he's a little bit undersized which is why he probably wasn't in the big 10, but the first game of the season they played at Iowa and James Harrison kept Kent state in the game as a linebacker. I don't think i would ever seen a linebacker in like he forced a fumble, had an interception and had like seven tackles in the first quarter. And it was like, you know, three, nothing Iowa because, because James Harrison was keeping them in the game. That's wild. Um, And that, and that alone said it all. So, can't go through the season and Josh Cribbs is like running for a hundred yards and throwing for 200 like every game and they they, they're five and five and they get this is back when they played 11 games and they play the last game of the season on a rainy day the day after Thanksgiving um, against Miami of Ohio at home now there was just nobody there Miami of Ohio had a decent record but they weren't going to a bowl or anything I think maybe they were like six and maybe they were seven and, and uh four or something like seven and three, I don't know. Um, and they had this quarterback, this at the time, very rangy, very uh, fleet footed, tall guy, um, freshman named Ben Roethlisberger. Never heard so, of him. I'm at, the, I'm at this game with 500 people. Um, ben Roethlisberger versus Josh Cribbs is a quarterback matchup, two freshmen. And James Harrison is playing his last game. He's a senior, his last game. And he absolutely wants nothing more than to be able to say, I had a winning record. So Kent scores a touchdown to go up 24-20 with about three minutes to go, three or four minutes to go. Miami got, gets the ball, and it's now Ben Roethlisberger's turn. And he drives them down the field. They get to about the 16 or 17-yard line. It wasn't goal, but it was like they were inside the 20.
0: I don't know how you remember this, and by the way. I If you ask gonna, me about I'm any, gonna any you, game. I'm
1: going to tell, tell you why. Okay. I'll right. tell you why I remember it because the next four plays James Harrison decided he was not going to lose and he hit Roethlisberger four consecutive times he did not sack him all four times but he hit him all four times and um, it got to like fourth and like 22 or something and they were like desperation play and they put At this point, um, Harrison was just putting his hand down and rushing from the end. And he had, like, the left tackle over there, and they had a running back over there, and he just bowled through them, grabbed Roethlisberger by the shoulder pad, and just spiked him on the ground to end the game. And it was an amazing moment. One of the most memorable moments I ever had of just seeing this defensive player completely control the game.
0: Right.
1: um, And just refusing to lose. And, you know, uh, by the way, the coach of that team was Dean Pease, who just retired. He later went on to. He's a yeah. defensive coordinator in Baltimore and um, in Tennessee. You know, I, haven't talked with, I haven't talked with Dean for 20 years, but I will promise you if you talked to Dean, he would remember this vividly. And any NFL team that would ever have seen that would have wanted this guy. Of course, nobody was interested. It was the day after Thanksgiving. Nobody was, there was no scouts at this game. Um, but James did not get drafted, and Josh Cribbs did not get drafted. James, in my mind, should be a Hall of Famer. You know I think what won the m v p of the Super Bowl one year he should have been the m v p of the Super Bowl but one of this one the Steelers made it in my mind he's a Hall of famer um Josh Gribbs had a great career for a guy who was undrafted, both undrafted, and anyway, so I matriculated over from the from the basket from the football season to the basketball season, and I met this um six foot three on a good day. I think he might even have make like <laughs> six two. Uh, just you know, beast of a man named Antonio Gates. And heavy left-handed player, like only could go to his left, only dribbles his left hand but just incredible athleticism, incredible hands. He had transferred into Kent for his junior year. He had previously been at like three other schools. He had had started out at at Michigan state and they were hoping to make him a football and basketball player, but he washed out, you know, he had a, he had a bit of a complicated academic history. Um, And uh, he was so crazy talented. Uh, He could play point guard. He could play center. You know, he, he, he initiated the offense, you know, he would be the leading rebounder and that team had another NBA player on it, a seven footer named John Edwards and a couple of guards who were, um, some of the best guards the conference had ever seen. And, and they had made the NCAA tournament the year before and won a game. And Gates was like the guy that they brought in and he made all the difference in the world. He elevated them from like a good big major team to a great college basketball team. And they went, uh, Wanna say they went twenty five and four during the regular season, they went seventeen and one in the conference, which I don't care what conference you're in, you go seventeen and one in a conference. You are awesome because you have to play half of those games and on the road. Right. And uh they made it into the NCAA tournament and they they were a ten seed in and, and the first round series. The first round they had played Oklahoma State and they beat them relatively easily. And the second round, which, you know, it seems like laughable now, but, you know, they won a NCAA tournament game. It was like no big deal to them. They had done it the year before they were a 13 seed and had upset Indiana. I covered that uh, that team, too. Um, and anyway, so they're playing at University of Alabama, who had this uh, – their star guard was a guy named Mo Williams. Yep. And uh, don't think I didn't talk trash to Mo about this for years after this. But uh, – <laughs> Uh, they had this other guy who got drafted, uh, a power forward named Rod Grizzard. who was like six eleven. Oh yeah, incredible athleticism. Incredible athleticism. And they had the uh, SEC Player of the Year, a center, Irwin Dudley. So you know they were number two seed. So you talked about top ten team in the country. And um, the game was in uh, was in Greenville, South Carolina, <laughs> and Antonio Gates just absolutely obliterated. Uh, he had one of the best games of his life and embarrassed Alabama. And Grisard was handling, was guarding him, and he didn't know what to do with him because Gates could hit a step-back 17-footer. He could post up and make like a sweep and hook shot. He would, he was stronger, you know, more powerful. He would just use his giant ass and kick, knock him out of position on rebound. <laughs> and, you know, in, in sort of the, the premium moment of the game, after he had hit like like three uh 15 footers or 17 footers from the wing um he got the ball in the wing again and he pump faked and grizzard went flying past him in the air like he was in a movie and gates just went right by and laid it up you know never said a word never changed the expression on his face and that was the thing about antonio he was just very very level very very smooth um never high too high never too low the rest of the team was seniors he was all he was the only junior and uh, so, but he was a difference-making player, and so they got all the way to the Elite Eight, and they lost to Indiana in a get-even game from the year before. Indiana hit sixteen threes in the game. Nowadays, everybody hit sixteen threes, but that was unheard. Of. Right. They shot the lights out in, in Kentucky. Um, uh, you know, had they hit thirteen threes, Kent State might have won, but they hit sixteen or seventeen or whatever it was, and that was it. Um, and then Indiana ended up making it to the to the final, and I think uh, Indiana played Oklahoma in the uh, in the semis in Atlanta, and I think um, had Kent somehow been able to win that game, that they would have beaten Oklahoma. Uh, they would have gotten to the national title game, where they would have played Maryland and gotten beaten. Maryland was stacked. They had like four NBA players on that team. They would not have won that game, but they would have they would have made it to the final. So, Gates comes back with his senior year. Most of the team is gone. They are good, but not great. I think they made the NIT. But Gates was, was like playing point forward um he would play point guard at one end and and like sometimes center at the other he was amazing but it was clear that he was not going to be an nba player and so partial the way as the season went on it started he started talking about playing football and some football scouts actually came to watch him play um some basketball games um and i remember vividly like scouts from the Colts came and interviewed him after the game and they did the interview in the media room <laughs> so like gates like we're all in the media room you know you know look this is this is not um you know Ohio State this is not uh you know UCLA they did not have like a a huge arena with 15 different rooms you know, right. they had this media interview room that was also the press room and And like when it was over, Antonio sat in the back and the scout from the Colts interviewed him about his interest in playing football. That's amazing. And I heard the whole interview. There was only three or four of us in the room. Did you write it? Um, I mean, I think we were all aware that he wanted to play football, but it was kind of crazy. You know, it was kind of a crazy concept. Um, So he like did, you know, so they made it to the NIT and they lost. And he went to the pro day, like Kent State had a pro day, of which like nobody showed up because um uh it's kent state even though um the year before they had two potential hall of famers that ended up getting uh signed signed out of there and so he had he had practiced football for like a week because the season ended in it, it right. march it was it was draft season you know so he like he like he didn't even, i don't even know if he had football cleats and he like took part in the pro day ran the 40 you know did some routes or whatever and um, San Diego Chargers signed him the next day after the draft, and I think his signing bonus was like five thousand dollars.
0: Yeah, that's generally what it would uh, be for an undrafted guy. Yeah,
1: yeah. So um, my, he played for him for that was two thousand two, I want to say. So he played yeah, it with was. him for 18, 18 years. A Kent he was Charger St- for the next eighteen years.
0: We could have had a Kent State Maryland mm-hmm. national title game. Could you imagine? that would have been wild i had it, a... i mean
1: like seriously uh it that could have i mean uh if any oklahoma pe- people are listening here they probably tell me i'm full of it but i'm 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 trying to be honest here i think they would have won that game now the other the other semifinal was kansas versus maryland they would not have beaten kansas <laughs> they were not the second best team in the country but uh, Mer- Oklahoma was a weak, was a weak Final Four team, in my
0: opinion. I had a bone to pick with that Maryland team because they they knocked UConn out of the tournament that year, and it was a UConn team that had one of your former colleagues, Karan Butler. Uh, Karan had, or maybe mm. he's a current colleague, Is he's still at ESPN.
1: No, I think he's he's not with us anymore, but I okay. know him. I have a good, I have a good so, relationship with
0: him. So, Karan had 32, and I actually watched this game like a month ago because that's how bored I was during quarantine. So, he had 32, and he had like 28 of them or something after halftime, but that team also had a freshman, Emeka Okafor, and a freshman, Ben Gordon. So, that team was loaded, and they should have won that game, and it was at the Carrier Dome, and it was just, yeah, I have a bone to pick with that Maryland team. But that's really fascinating about Gates, and so I have to ask you about one more player, uh, before I let you go, yeah. football-wise. Now, inevitably, uh, people are looking for content and stories and things during this lockdown. So with things at a lull at the moment, once again, the idea of LeBron playing football has resurfaced. And it's been out there that, you know, Jerry Jones offered him a contract and, you know, people are just joking yeah. around about what it would be like if he played in the NFL, et cetera, et cetera. You actually saw him play in high school when he was an all-state mm-hmm. wide receiver, right?
1: Yeah, I mean... um when he was a freshman, he played on the JV team for nine weeks. <laughs> and then like some, you know, week 10, they were like, maybe we should, maybe we should bring the six foot three kid up and see what he does on varsity. And like <laughs> week 10 of the season, he had like four catches and a touchdown. They made the playoffs for week 11 and he had like seven catches for 120 yards and a touchdown in the playoff game, which they lost. So he played like two games his freshman year. Uh, they're a little still on the uptake over there. Uh, he came back as a sophomore and was a stud. Um, but at this point, like, he had become, like, a basketball phenom. Everybody yeah, he, knew he who was, he was. He
0: was LeBron James, yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, I mean, here's what you have to understand. So my high school, like, it's a, a mid-sized Catholic school. They didn't have a conference. You know, they they weren't playing in a league where, they, where it was, like, um, you know <laughs> – you know, Dallas or, or Miami where like each team has seven, uh, division one players on it. Okay. So like when he would go out to the flank, <laughs> there'd be a five foot, 10, 175 pound white kid lining up across from him. trying to play cornerback, yeah. you know, and you'd see one of the most freak athletes ever to walk the earth. It's like, good luck. Um, so he, his junior, he had decided he was going to stop playing after his sophomore year um but his first game of his junior year I I think the sophomore year the team wasn't very good I don't think they made the playoffs his first game of his junior year he wasn't playing he came and stood on the sidelines I remember I was at this game uh I was I was covering for the newspaper and they pulled an upset of another team in the city that they were not expected to beat and um it was pretty clear that they had a pretty good team actually they had a defensive lineman who was one of lebron's teammates who uh turned out to be really good and went to ohio state to play football um and he was a factor and and so um and then romeo travis was another one of his teammates played defensive end and he he played professional basketball and i think he might still be playing he played professional basketball in europe he's six seven so they had like this dominating pass rush but anyway um, so after one game of his junior year, he decided he couldn't help it and he had to come out and play, but they kind of came up with a, with some rules. He was so big and strong, um, that the only way you could really bring him down was to go low on him. Right. And so they were so concerned about him going across the middle and somebody going low and taking on his knees. Right. So right. I don't I don't, I don't want to say he never went over the middle, but he basically ran fade routes and out routes and he would run out of bounds. And, Nobody could cover him. He was still an all-state wide receiver, you know. Um, And that year, that team made it all the way to the state Semifinals before losing, but he had some ungodly number of yards and touchdowns.
0: Yeah, you mentioned it. I think it was on your podcast, maybe like a month ago, that you were talking about the footage of the flag football game that he had played in with. I don't know, was it Durant that what they were that they were playing against a bunch of all stars and stuff? And I remember I went and watched it, and he was LeBron was playing safety, and and you had described just how like he's unreal in terms of reading the quarterback and anticipation and his ability to close ground, and it was it was insane to watch him.
1: Because he's so fast and has such great hands, you would be insane not to play him on offense. Right, right. And I don't think he ever played defense in high school. I mean, maybe as a junior varsity player, but I had never seen him play defense before. When I watched that side football game, um, uh, I saw him as a safety. It was ter- <laughs> it was terrifying. Yeah. Um,
0: no, <laughs> uh, I don't. I don't know he if he'd be able like... or want to hit anybody, which is obviously part of the job description. But from and, and but I would like almost say I, it doesn't matter. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. You
1: could you know you anything deep he was going to be able to outrun. Um, you know the other thing about him um, a story I like to tell is so what they would do is they would naturally whenever they would get down near the goal line they would um, uh, throw fades to him or right. lobs to him in the corner of the end zone which is very effective. I think he had like 15 or 16 touchdown catches in, in like 10 or 11 games. It's pretty good, you know? Um, and the quarterback was six foot five. Another one of his, 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 um, his teammates who played basketball, um, but he wasn't, he didn't, so he was six five, so He was great to be a quarterback, but he did not have the greatest. I think he threw sidearm. It was not the you know, he, you know, let's put it this way. He was not headed for greatness as a quarterback. Okay. And so he was a little bit of a wild thrower. So, the 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 school is in right in the middle of downtown and the football stadium had to be sort of squeezed into this you know sort of small area and there was a there was a fence right next to the um end zone and it was an eight foot high fence with barbed wire on it and on the other side was a cadillac dealership i think there's a cadillac dealership to this day there although i think they rebuilt the football stadium and shifted the field a little bit but so and it was in the right corner of the end zone, which is where you'd want to go for a um for a right handed corner, but I don't know. Anyway, there would be times, I saw it happen at least twice, where they would throw the fade to him in that corner of the end zone. And look, he was as a junior in high school, he was probably about six six, two fifteen or something like that.
0: Jeez.
1: Um you'd throw you'd throw the ball ten feet in the air, right? Because the idea was you don't want the defensive back to have any chance. Right. So Sometimes he threw the ball 12 feet in the air or 11 feet, or he just overthrew it and the ball would sail over the end zone over LeBron and over the fence and slam a Cadillac in the, <laughs> in the lot door. The I saw it happen several times. God knows how often it happened in practice.
0: That's amazing.
1: Um, yeah. So, um, but he just, he just, you know, so like if he had played football, um, I think he would have been ripe for injury because like, you know, like Gronkowski has spent his whole career injured Yeah. because guys have to slam him low or, you know, spear him to his head to get him down. You know, yes, he'd have been great, but I would have been afraid for his health. You know, he'd have probably had to, you know, he probably would have wanted to play like Randy Moss and just like literally run a fly pattern every single time. Um, there's something so to be said for that for but yeah 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 <laughs> yeah so, um because i just you know i just don't think uh i, I just think would have been very hard although i just i mean just like he's six foot nine uh i mean there hasn't been that many super tall receivers you know for various reasons so no,
0: no. um and but, even even if he played defense he'd be taller than every defensive end in the league too
1: my god he just he would just stand at the he would just, he wouldn't even have to get blocked, just stand there and try to knock the passes yeah, down.
0: Exactly. <laughs>
1: but um, that, so during the lockout, uh, he was playing for the Heat at the time, but he came home to Akron during the lockout. Um, and he had Durant come with him. Um, and, you know, he said in an interview this week that he was training for football. Uh, and, you know, he was. And so the school that we went to was built into the side of the hill. And the hill in the back of the school was, you know, if you were the football team or any athletic team for the last 50 years, they would run this hill. It was like a a hill that went straight up like three stories and you'd have to sprint up the hill and run down. It was like a conditioning drill. And the, the school building like sort of was built into that hill. So, um, like I remember on the first floor was the art room. On the second floor was the, uh, the science labs and the third floor was the uh, like uh, Spanish and French classrooms that all looks, like, looked out on this hill. Or in some cases, the hill like literally went right by the, the window because it went up. So he and Kevin Durant were doing workouts during the day at the high school. So can you imagine? Can, I want you to time and place this. This is 2011 uh lebron is the mvp or has been the two-time mvp Durant is like on the come up They're 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 soon to play in the finals they're going to play in the finals against each other the next year but two of the best players in the in the in the world right and you're sitting in your science class and you look out the window and they're running by on like a wednesday morning yeah. at like 11 in the morning running the hill like he used to run the hill when he was a football player at the santa the school so and he did he went and like worked to hit the sleds and ran the 40. I mean, he was trying to keep himself interested in in staying in shape and everything. So, um, uh, you know, so that week they, they worked out together and practiced every day at the high school because they had a, they have a practice gym. That was a standalone that he could go to without being bothered. They were out there running the Hill and and using the football field to run routes. And then they, uh, they decided to cut a wrap, track together which if you google you can find it it's awful they like got into some studio and cut a a song and then at the end of the week they both got teams and played flag football uh which i went and watched Uh, and like hired a camera crew to like stream it live on the internet so they were bored. They were rich, bored guys.
0: Uh well, it's in it, the lockout. It remains one of the uh, the great modern sports what ifs of if he had tried to play football, just because he is such a freak athlete. That's I can't imagine. You know, just looking outside a window while I'm trying to learn about you know chromosomes and enzymes and catalyzation, and all of a sudden you see two guys. It that
1: was are, the it was the it was the labs. So like it was like you were you were either with your Bunsen burner or you were dissecting yeah, a frog. Exactly or something, and you would look out, and uh, LeBron and Kevin Durant were running past your window.
0: That's amazing. That's amazing. Well, Brian, I've already taken up way more of your time than I promised I would, so I appreciate you being so generous and telling all these stories. This was a lot of fun. Hopefully, uh, we have some basketball coming back soon, so if I have you on the podcast again later this year down the road, we can talk some hoops that are actually happening instead of some hoops that are already done and hopefully happening down the road, but we shall see. Um, but I'm glad to hear everything is going well. And thanks again for joining me.
1: All right. Take care.
0: So there you have it. A conversation with ESPN's national NBA reporter, Brian Windhorst. I thank him very much for taking so much of his time to uh, to join the show. I did not anticipate that being an hour and a half conversation, but there were a lot of good stories and Brian's a very good storyteller as those of you who are still listening know by now. Uh, That was a lot of fun to switch it up a little bit and break out of the NFL mold. Uh, When I actually started this podcast, I thought about kind of expanding beyond football and just bringing in, you know, anybody that I had contacts with in the sporting world that was an interesting figure and, and might be somebody who people would like hearing from because I have covered the NBA, I have covered college basketball, I have covered college football, I have covered soccer, in addition to the NFL, which of course, you know, made up the bulk of my experience when I was covering the Packers. So, you know, we'll see how it goes. Um, if you guys enjoyed this and, and don't mind dipping into some other worlds, um, maybe I'll continue that way. And if there's guys that you like hearing from, then you listen to that particular episode. And if you're more focused on the NFL episodes, then maybe you tune in for those. We'll we'll see how it goes, and we'll see how easy or difficult it becomes for me to uh, get people to agree to do the show. Um, again, these episodes are all available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and just about anywhere else you listen to shows. For those of you who have continued to leave us comments and star ratings on the Apple iTunes app or uh, podcast app, I really appreciate that. Especially the star ratings, if you don't feel like leaving a review, I totally understand, but for those of you listening on an Apple device, if you don't mind leaving five stars if you enjoy the show, it means a lot. And as I've mentioned before, with the algorithm for Apple Podcasts and iTunes, the more positive feedback you get, the higher you get placed on their list of rankings and the more visible you become and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's a snowball effect there. So again, thank you to everyone who has already done that and for those of you who will continue to do so. So until the next episode of this podcast, I hope you have a terrific rest of your day, a terrific rest of your week, and I will talk to you again soon.